Did Don Draper really buy the world a Coke? Did Tony Soprano really die or just order more onion rings? The finales of our favorite shows can make us argue, make us cry, and make us crazy. From Spotify and The Ringer, I'm Andy Greenwald, and this is Stick the Landing, a new podcast where we'll be telling the story of modern TV backwards, one fade out at a time. Find Stick the Landing on Wednesdays on the Prestige TV feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's awake. It's Andy Greenwald! That would be a cool thing to say to someone, <laughs> right? Yeah, if they were making a TikTok about, you know, some food that they were cooking and then all of a sudden the homie behind you is just like, he's awake. Yeah. Uh, we are here to talk to you about the first episode of True Detective Night Country, which you hopefully just watched because we are going to be talking spoilers for said first episode. Andy, this was obviously something that I've been anticipating for a really long time as I am a huge fan of the True Detective franchise. I'm you not are. afraid. Yeah, I am a detective. Uh, I go mm-hmm. to detective cons. Mm-hmm. I've been known to drive around Ojai looking for Nick Pizzolatto, who is not involved in this uh, this this iteration EP of the show. credit. Of course, is the yeah. creator of the original franchise. This comes to us from Issa Lopez, who is a director of a wonderful 2017 film called Tigers Are Not Afraid. And she created this version of True Detective uh, and directed the episodes. And, and uh, this also comes to us through Barry Jenkins' Barry production Jenkins, company, executive his, produced his relationship it. with HBO. And uh, Issa Lopez is on The Watch tonight, today. So uh, stick around for my interview with Issa Lopez in the second half of this episode. We talked extensively about the first episode of, of the show and just about her approach to mm-hmm. to Night Country. What did you think of the, the show, just in like the broadest strokes? I'm in. I thought it was an excellent hour of television. I thought that, um, I mean, we can get more into the specifics. I actually want to turn it back to you in a moment to talk about why you think this is a true detective show. Mm-hmm. To my mind, what was really compelling about it was it understood, I think, the template of the previous seasons. Uh, even aspects of the template that I have 
bucked against and complained about in writing and on the podcast. In that, True Detective, not a lot of lulls. Mm -hmm. Generally a serious show about people in serious anguish detecting serious crimes. Yeah. But what I absolutely loved about, especially this first hour, and I should say, I don't know if you're the same. I've not watched ahead because I'm going to be trying I, to. Right. Like, I, I am trying to be good. It's hard for you. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's useless to jump ahead because then you wind up being like, you, you're watching the second episode and you're, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm being good. So what I really loved about it was its complete commitment to the specificity of place, of taking us to a place that I promise you I will never go which in this case ask you about this. is uh, Ennis, Alaska, yeah. uh, basically in a time of permanent night during the winter. Yeah, near the Arctic Circle. Um, and doing something really remarkable, I thought, in terms of this is not a place that I've been, this is not a place I'd like to go, but Issa Lopez is showing us the aspects of what life would be like there with just, I thought, a really remarkable attention to detail in terms of like the line outside the liquor dispensary, basically, like the piled up canned goods in people's homes, the way the homes would feel if they were your only shelter for months of night at a time. Yeah. And also making us feel connected to the psychological mindset of people who have chosen to live in a place like this or living there by, whether it's by choice or circumstance, but that there's a kind of universality to their emotional anguish mm -hmm. that I felt, and this is a weird thing to say about a show that is, otherworldly and violent and dark, but I felt welcomed by this show in a way that I found really compelling and I was ready to go on this journey. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so what you were just saying made me think about one of the things I talked to Issa Lopez about, which was the mystery of what happened to these men at the uh, Salal uh, station, mm -hmm. this, this uh, research facility, and also what's going on with these people because everyone seems to have pre-existing relationship with some scar tissue attached mm -hmm. with each other. And I like the fact that we are, as an audience, trusted enough to kind of go along with that without it being exposition dumps yes. uh, every single time somebody new walks in. And one of the crucial things that I love about this is that there isn't a audience avatar, new guy in town, detective flown in to investigate this thing and has to go up to every single bartender and every single teacher and every single person, the medical examiner, and say, so why doesn't this person like this person? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and and in the character of Danvers, who's played by Jodie Foster, and we'll get into Jodie Foster because I think I underrated mm -hmm. the importance of I, her being in True Detective. This is right. We get a very special kind of police officer that I don't feel like I've seen in a very long time. It in some ways harkens back to some 70s cops and in some ways is just a person with a job doing that job to the best of their ability on a daily basis. And it's just a fantastic thing to watch a great actor kind of tell a story through action. And Jodie Foster is always doing something in this show mm -hmm. and she is phenomenal in it so far. I also think that one of the reasons that you and I love genre shows and specifically the genre of a detective show is because in the right hands, it's an opportunity to color vibrantly outside the lines yeah. because the lines are given to you. Which isn't to say that there's anything boilerplate about the construction of this particular mystery. It's spooky, it's surprising, and I don't, I'm not going to like sit here and offer theories because I just want to see where it's going. But under the general assumption of the skeleton of a murder mystery, what you see the touch of the author in what's all around it. And the little details like the Ferris Bueller twist and shout scene being on repeat. Yeah. Like Danvers, Jodie Foster's characters, partners being a father and son, 
uh, with their own baggage and their own relationship to each other. The really compelling, potentially supernatural weirdness at the margins, which is mostly told through Fiona Shaw's character and Rose, her visions yeah. of some of Travis, who is not alive but is pointing things out to us and um, doing some incredible choreography. I thought yeah. that was beautiful. Yeah. Also, I, I want to harp on the moment in Callie Reese's character's uh, um, oh uh, uh, Navarro Navarro's flashback to her time in the military. And there's a really haunting visual of her embracing someone who, had their head blown off. Yeah. who is nominally alive or standing. Yeah. Shout out Gus Fring, but has lost half of her head. And this is the sort of thing that's like, these are the curly cues in the margins that separate a regular detective show from, I'm not going to say from a true detective show, but from one that might potentially be exceptional. And I was happy to see those. And I was, I was in. Yeah, so let me, why don't I just actually just do a quick recap of what we just saw, just mm-hmm. so that we can work off of that, and then we can kind of go in any different direction you want. So as Andy and I mentioned, it's set in Ennis, Alaska, a fictional town that's uh, close to the Arctic Circle, I believe, and is going through its month of darkness. Uh, it's just a day or two, or day three of the dark and, period there. And, and I wanted to say, like, you and I have seen a lot of Arctic programming over the last few years. Yeah. There, was, there was the show The Head. I watched that. That was not similar, but had some of the broad strokes. There was the the North Water, which we both really loved and talked about. Little things mattered, such as I thought this was more like the head, that it would be an investigation into an isolated research station. Mm-hmm. The fact that this is near, I mean, I don't know what distance means in this place, but a town yeah, made so much difference to me that we're actually, okay, we're in a place. It's not just helicoptering in to investigate you know, specific, yes. site-specific madness. I think in terms of, like, the uh, the, re- the relationship between a crime and a place, it's almost more like Broadchurch than it is The Thing, although it definitely has I was about to say the thing, elements yes. of The Thing, especially at the end of the episode. So anyway, we're in Ennis. Uh, Ennis is patrolled by some cops, Liz Danvers and Evangeline Navarro. Uh, they, they seem to have complicated paths with one another. They also seem to be working for different departments or different you know, sections of the municipal government or of the, of the state government. Someone is essentially murder police. Yes. And the other, and, and Seems Navarro more had, like a highway patrolman she's or been, a regular beat cop kind of thing. She's been knocked down to yes. trooper. And we're also introduced to a scientific research base called Salal Station where weird shit just seems to happen in these kinds of places. But we see a pretty domestic scene of people exercising and... And doing laundry, doing laundry, and a guy is making a, a a cooking TikTok or Instagram live, and behind him, one of his colleagues seems to be going through some sort of seizure while standing up. He notices, he turns around, the guy stops his seizure, turns to his friend who's making the video, and says, "She's awake." A we the next time we see the station is when a food delivery man, like a guy bringing a bunch of chips and and dry goods for their for their winter, shows up. He needs somebody to sign for the delivery, and he finds a tongue on the ground, mm. and everybody is missing and gone. So, thus bringing Danvers and her partner uh, at the department, John, played by John Hawks, and his son, who is sort of Danvers's protege as a detective. They come, and they're starting to investigate this disappearance, and what should we treat this as? Is this missing persons? What Do we have a crime? What's going on? And the evidence of this tongue connects, possibly, What's happened at this station to uh, an older murder case of uh, of a woman that Navarro had been investigating and mm-hmm. had obviously kind of 
gone down with the ship with this investigation. She had been, there's allusions to her harassing people from a mine that, that is in Ennis, all sorts of stuff. But essentially what we get, we're getting is the thinnest of connections between what's happened to the men in the research station and what might have happened to this murder victim, from Annie, from a few years ago. In any case, we also are clued in, as you said, that Danvers does not like the song Twist and Shout as recorded by the Beatles and seen in the film Ferris Bueller that's playing on a loop and she has a very bad reaction to that. We get pictures, a picture of Danvers's relationship to the town, to her daughter, to her colleagues, her friends, and with Navarro. They seem to have something of a kind of complicated past, mm-hmm. the nature of which is not really made clear yet. As the episode goes on, we're introduced to a character named Rose, who seems to be kind of a loner living on the outskirts of town. And she's visited by a man named Travis, who leads her out into basically the frozen tundra outside of her house. And she eventually happens upon something that by the end of the episode we learn is a Hieronymus Bosch-like sculpture of bodies of the men from the Salal station who have been frozen, but also frozen in a state of terror um, and have have suffered an incredible amount of trauma and are all dead. By by the way, shout out to Fiona Sons. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, if you're going to be reaching back to cast someone in these things, whether it's Andor or Killing Eve, like... And now this, Fiona Shaw could, can can do everything and makes everything interesting. So I think the question that I, I was going into for this series, and I talked to Issa a little bit about this, is what makes Night Country True Detective? That's what I want to ask you, yeah. I think that the opening scene, which I re- re- neglected to mention, is of a group of reindeer, I think. Are they reindeer? Uh, to me, they are. I mean, this is, a, this is a show, and I'm guilty of this myself, a lot of emotional lifting being done by animals. Um, but I believe they are reindeer and I, I, I do believe that they commit mass suicide at, yeah. in the beginning of this episode. They go running off of the side of a cliff. That's because she's is, awake, right? Yeah. And it's a pretty disturbing image to begin the series with, but is true detective. This idea that there is an almost mystical or supernatural evil force in the world that is mm-hmm. compelling, that is, that is desecrating the natural world. And is like kind of upsetting the balance of the world is very true detective. Mm-hmm. And I think even to bookend the image of the all these animals killing themselves in the beginning of the episode and the last shot, which is essentially these bodies molded together in the ice in a state of abject horror, mm-hmm. um, is is a similar kind of image of a horror that goes beyond explanation. And that is what like Carcosa was. Uh, that is what the pink house in True Detective season three was. There's always this idea that there's this like basically like kind of a window into hell. You know, this like a, a like a an underworld that is just outside of the 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 sort of everyday eye in in your your waking life. And there's a dreamlike quality to this to the series in whole, as a whole, but especially to this to this season because of its setting. I think that, again, this is off of one episode, so I want to be measured because we have a, a longer way to go with this. But through one episode, Issa Lopez's integration of the hard-boiled and the supernatural feels very compelling to me and feels very uh, thoughtful. I almost don't even want to say supernatural as much as inexplicable. Yeah, well, but I think it's more so than... Okay, so one of my 
criti- I mean, I'm not going to revisit it, but like, no, I think this but, is. But, but one of the things that I struggled with with True Detective season one was I felt like when I was referring to this idea of painting outside the lines, I felt that a lot of the richness of season one felt like directorial choices as opposed to a consistently expressed um, ethos of the show's creative hive mind on mass. Okay, which is to say. We always talk about like the was it like the Bon Mi shop or the like the cloud the swirling clouds and horizons that Gary Fukunaga's camera picked up. Yeah. Those were adding depth to something that I found frustratingly thin at times. Right. Similarly, I remember when we were covering the show week to week, a lot of the kind of the very aggressive, and I don't fault this, I can be a fan like this too, but kind of the aggressive redditing fan brain took over and being like, ah, Hello. Flowers and yes. Carcosa. And this I'm, is actually, I'm right here. You can just, you okay, can I'll just, speak to you. Yeah. But like, oh, this show is actually about Cthulhu and there's like a Lovecraftian element. And in fact, it was a cop show. It was a cop show, which is, there's no crime in that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that stuff felt to me in my viewing of it, week to week, I never rewatched it. I didn't consider it as a whole. Maybe I should have. That did not feel comprehensive to me. It did not feel Earned is a word that I get in trouble for, so I don't want to say it. But it did not feel consistent with the show. It felt like distracting. Right. And it felt like it was showy. Like, look, maybe this is a show with depth, but maybe it's not. So far through one, it feels of a piece to me. The world of Danvers in her life feels to me to be a world where polar bears could show up out of nowhere. Or it feels to me a world where a woman on the edge of town could speak to ghosts. That's a tough tightrope to walk. But I feel I am buying what is being sold to me right now because it does feel like there's a consistency to it. And I wonder, maybe there's no mystery to this. I don't want to be like subjectively, she's gifted at X, Y, or Z, or Nick Pizzolatto struggles with it. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. It might solely be because through one episode, we are seeing the vision of a filmmaker. In that, the woman who wrote it is also directing it. So she's showing us her vision in a way that the tension of the first season of True Detective and some of the best things about it came from a tension between the writer and director pulling us in different directions. Yeah, I think that the there are some similarities in so, so much as like the 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 towns that were of Louisiana that they went into mm-hmm. um, were I think even the the McConaughey character describes them as just like basically ghost towns or towns that have been forgotten by time or mm-hmm. t- towns that like are full of, you know, dead dreams or whatever he poetic way he put it. And Ennis feels something some of a piece to that with me. It's the kind of place that something like this could happen. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of really wise filmmaking choices that Issa's made. First of all, because it's so cold, they have to do some they're they're, they're inside a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. So that indoorsness of it actually conversely makes it feel like it's daytime sometimes. Yeah. But at points in the show, She's able to disorient the viewer the same way that the people who live in the town are disoriented, where let's say somebody goes and gets a drink. You're like, are they getting a drink too early in the day? Right, right. Or is it nighttime because it's always nighttime? Is it dinner time? Is it breakfast? Is it time to work? Is it time to stop working? Mm -hmm. Does the fact that it's never daylight mean you're always burning the midnight oil? Like there is like a kind of energy that is imbued in this show without it being monochromatic and it's like they're always standing outside in the night and I can't tell what's going on. I think it's a great observation and it's text. It's not just subtext. Like there's the scene when uh, Peter, who's the younger cop, goes home and we see his child and we see his wife and they are getting intimate and romantic and then he gets a text from his boss and 
the idea of like you shouldn't answer that you're off duty yeah. works over but like is it yeah who right. knows there's I, also we, yeah, I, I don't so know there's only like four cops so it's like I, I and presumably... i don't know what time it is right and her work assignment is to go to his dad's house right and say he wants chips but really he's stealing files like it's everything is way too on top of each other yeah and i think that the, by that same token the interpersonal relationships seem on top of each other as well so you've got Danvers' daughter is in a relationship with another younger girl. Uh, her teenage daughter. Her teenage daughter is in in, in a, a new relationship with someone and seems to be getting in trouble for that. And, and are we right? Am I right to assume that I think it's implied that that her daughter, Leah, is her stepdaughter and who she continues to mother? And there's a suggestion that Maybe there was a car accident. Yes, so we've that, lost. We haven't, we haven't really gotten the Danvers family tree stuff But there's down. something there. Yeah, but there are... The relationships, I think, are, are uh, multiple and complicated. And then you have uh, Navarro, who's got her sister living in town, and her sister seems to be struggling with her mental health, and yes. Navarro is sort of in charge of her well-being. But I never found that th- those kind of interpersonal things distracting, nor did I find them confusing, and I was refreshed by the fact that these two people don't necessarily like each other, but they're not saying why they don't. You know, yes. Danvers doesn't seem to like really anyone. Why? I don't know. Does she feel like she's been demoted by being in Ennis? Is there some place she'd rather be? I note with interest that she's wearing a Minnesota Vikings sweatshirt. She's she, super into fantasy football. Yes, but is she from Minnesota? Is there a reason why she's out here? All these questions that you might have are going to come to us in in the right time. There's a confidence in the storytelling that I really appreciate, and I think it's a lost art, which is when you start something and you start a story with a pilot, yes, you're juggling the mysteries to come in terms of like what you want to reveal, how you want, in this case, the crime to be solved, or you want the puzzle pieces to reveal themselves. But you also are juggling what came before you started your story and why you started your story there. And we're recording this after having a conversation about the Marvel show Echo, which I don't want to kick for any particular reason, other than to say a hallmark of a lot of contemporary, particularly IP storytelling, is a complete, what projects as a complete lack of confidence in what the audience can handle and what they need to know and what they don't. And so we get way too much information and we don't start the story at the right place because you're just backfilling. This story, again, crime shows are great at this because you can start with a crime and then everything else can fill its way in. But that's some of the hard-boiled tradition that Pizzolatto was building on when he started his show, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you, you earn a lot of leeway because we understand that this is an investigation and that the, in, in, the detectives will be investigating the crime and we the audience will be investigating the investigators we understand that but there is a lot of confidence in how this show begins uh with a lot of backstory that is leveraged correctly with a really really wonderful lack of heavy-handed flashback let's talk a little bit about jody foster yeah so I don't believe she's been on television since she was a child actor. Not in, not in a major way, yeah. And she's directed for television a lot. She's done a ton of directing for TV, and she's also really only been in. She's in Nyad this year, which I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, she's done like three or four movies in the last decade or so. Um, she's mostly been directing, and mostly been directing. So you forget that when you and me were growing up, basically, this is one of like the most significant actors of our lifetime, you yes. know, and that between Silence of the Lambs, which uh, Issa talks about directly being inspired by Clarice and wanting to sort of imagine a, an older version of this this young sort of genius detective, 
not that necessarily Danvers is Clarice, mm-hmm. but she's like, how could you not think of Clarice when you're looking at Jodie Foster? But The Accused and like so many other like, you know, incredible performances throughout the 80s and 90s that to get to see her back on screen is great. Just full stop. To see her back with something so rich to work with, like material that's so uh, like clearly like engaging her on all five senses. You know, she's like listening, mm-hmm. she's moving, she's talking. You can you can feel her feel this environment, mm-hmm. and at the same time is unlike any true detective cop we've seen before. Both the uh, I mean, she's probably closer to the Woody Harrelson character. In, like a sort of put upon professional. Yeah, a little bit, but like clearly has a little bit of Rust's like ability to see the entire thing and see in three dimensions. And as she's spreading out all those pictures on her floor, like clearly has that kind of brain that can operate on a higher level of an mm-hmm. investigation. But I, I just found this character to be absolutely compelling to watch. Like it's just like you want to know what they're going to do in the next scene, in the next scene, in the next scene. It's a star turn. I, there's, you know, there's a lot of the last 10 years has been a, a large portion of it. Certainly what we cover on the podcast has been about movie stars yeah. and actors going to television. But this is a star performance. It's That's different than a, a movie star taking a role on a TV show. And part of that is because, you know, we understand cops and detectives like that as a classic movie role. But the gravity of the show is built around her charisma and her strength. And all of the things that her charisma and strength, and even honestly, celebrity in our history with her, everything that that papers over in terms of we just trust it, we understand it. Like you're into it. Like some of the things you're saying, I agree with. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, but a lot of it, I feel like about her ability and her depth of field and vision. That's you're intuiting that because it's Jodie Foster, yeah, and the and, way she plays it, which is what you should do when you have great actors. But I also think I'm responding to the fact that this is a change of pace for. A lot of the times when you see somebody who's really gifted at this kind of work on screen, like a detective like this, there is a degree of which they're like almost supernaturally gifted at it and mm-hmm. it comes at a cost. So I'm thinking of specifically of like Carrie from Homeland or something like mm-hmm. that, where it's just like, oh, but they're tortured by their own genius. And Danvers seems like a hard worker and I'm sure she's really good at what she's doing, but she seems a lot more like the Gene Hackman French Connection character mm-hmm. than she does like Sherlock she, Holmes or or she, Carrie from Homeland. She's pretty angry about drunk drivers. Yes. Well, she's not you would fan. be because it's always dark there so people are probably <laughs> cramped yes. at all I, hours. I, I also just like her... I, I don't want to say like she's unique in this because a lot of great actors do this, but she's a star who's also a, a sneaky good team player. Yeah. And I really enjoy... It's not always, it, it, chemistry is tough, especially with a, a franchise that is based on it being a two-hander or having some, you know, and so the dynamic between Callie Reese, who is, uh, I've not seen in anything before. Yeah, and, and she's was a professional a, boxer before she and became she an And she was in a film called Catch the Fair One that's really cool, um, but for the most part hasn't, hasn't done a lot of acting. It is fair to say that her style and her tempo and what she brings is different than Jodie Foster's, mm-hmm. but I'm into it. And it's working. And I think a lot of that, I don't want to assume, but I imagine that a lot of that comes from Jodie Foster's own intuition as a director and as a veteran performer and how to give and take with someone. These people and, also just feel real. Yes. And, 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 the, and the, with history and dynamics yeah. between them. But as much as I like her with Callie Reese, I also am totally floored by her and John Hawks, mm-hmm. who I believe I sent you the Brian Dawkins <laughs> yeah. tackling someone with his entire body uh, image to suggest what it was like when John Hawks showed up on set. Because that guy just always brings it. Yeah. 
and you put him in a part, and the part's more interesting. It's yeah. just one of those guys. It's I think Finn Bennett's doing a really good job yeah. as Peter so far. Like, really no bad... No, and, and like you, we, we mentioned Fiona Shaw earlier, like if you're going to have somebody be the log lady of the show, it's like you could do a lot worse than Fiona Shaw. And, and it's, it, it's funny, like I don't want to overrate it. It's one episode. It could go off the rails. We're not sure where we're headed, but I still am going to flag it when I see what HBO does best. And HBO can really fill out a call sheet. Mm-hmm. HBO can really fill out the margins of something. This show, no disrespect to any other streamer or network, but... Take the word True Detective off of it and say it's just a show called Night Country that Issa Lopez is pitching around. It should get made. I don't know yet what True Detective is. That was a- what the, she said she had an idea mm-hmm. for this setting and generally speaking, a cop mm-hmm. investigating a crime that happens at a research center. And then, then there was the bake-off for True Detective and that it was like yeah. basically the marriage of the two. Yeah, it, it was not intended to be this. And it's interesting that hopefully it's both both sides of that equation are going to profit from this creatively, if not, you know, in terms of a longer run for the True, True Detective franchise. But just to say, Night Country on FX, Night Country on AMC, isn't going to look like this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be, I'm not saying it's worse, but the caliber of actor who show up in Iceland to film this, the budget necessary to make it look as rich as it does, this is what HBO and it's has also, always done, and I love seeing them do it. You alluded to Issa's sort of level of talent like I feel like even in the first episode I kind of am starting to have a sense of like what the town how the town is laid out Mm -hmm. and okay so that's the bar that's the cafe that's the police station Salal stations out there like you're starting to get an idea of like oh here are the tensions between maybe miners who are transplants but feel like they're you know Mm -hmm. they're the ones keeping the lights on out here what are the problems with that mine who owns the mine etc etc I wanted to kind of get just, just, just I, I want to jump on that too. Like, again, I have not seen her movie. I want to see it. I'm looking forward to listening to your interview with her. But there is a generosity to this episode in that the filmmaking is lovely and considered and world-building. And when a filmmaker is given carte blanche to make a TV show, it's not always like that. It doesn't always, they don't always, and sometimes it works. Like whether, you know, um, when uh, Park Chan-wook made um, the Lacar. Yeah, I'm like, he wasn't worried about making a TV show in any traditional way. It was just a beautiful thing that I that I ended up loving. This feels welcoming, and I, you know, I'm, I'd be curious as the thing goes on whether you credit like Matt Chesse, who's the editor of this, who has done great work in the past. Like, it's just put together really nice. Yeah, and then like even um, little details like the different places people live and the differences between those places, like the fact that Peter's place. Uh, is a little shabbier, but is like a starter home kind of like warm vibe. Mm-hmm. Then his dad's place is like recent bachelor mm-hmm. vibes, you know. And Pretty he's, blue, very he's blue. waiting on his his mail order bride Dude, or whatever. That's funny. That um, seems funny. And Jodie Foster's place has a little bit more of a suburban mom kind of look to the kitchen and everything. So just like telling story through these like little gestures within within the production are really cool. I wanted to ask you though. About uh, a bunch of dudes frozen to each other mm. in the in the mm-hmm. in the snow. Uh, you're not like the biggest horror guy in the world, but no. did you ho- find that horrifying? Were you like turned off by like the level of grotesque violence that obviously went into that? No, I thought the this 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 goes back to the point I keep making about feeling, maybe perhaps um, prematurely, but feeling very confident about the generosity of the filmmaker. I don't feel in 
thank you for asking about my feelings. I do not feel personally triggered or in peril. Yeah. I think that uh, the the horror and the grotesquerie is of a piece with everything that we're seeing. And I found it disturbing, but I found it exciting. Yeah. You know, in a way, I, I was really... I, I cannot stress enough how much I enjoyed watching this. And it's such a funny low bar to state, but there has been a lot of, even of things that I've liked and talked about liking on the mic, whether it's my attention span or whether it's a comment on the quality of what I've been watching, I have been distracted or not fully, fully invested in. And I was enraptured by this. Yeah. So I'm I'm really glad you're into it. We can stop there unless there was some other stuff that you wanted to hit. Like there's there's not really much speculation to go on yet. Like we we've get to the end of this episode. We've we've learned a couple of things. These guys from the station, at least some of them are dead, based on like what I we would can assume see in the so, snow. yes. This is a place where the dead still can be among us. That that Rose sees Travis, that people seem to obviously feel things out there. Mm-hmm. This is a place where everybody's on edge already. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a place where everybody's got their secrets and everybody's got their past relationships. And I think that those things are all going to come to a head. Any other stuff you wanted to mention? It, it's a really good pilot. It's a really good first episode because I am in a place that I found myself before with other good shows where when you ask me like what I want to note or I, I'm like, I, I'm actually just, I'm in. Yeah. I actually don't have any uh, arm's length. Well, I wonder, or she'll need to establish this for me too. I don't have any... Uh, I'm not doing any bartering with the straw Issa Lopez in my mind about what's going to happen next. I can't wait to watch the next episode. We're going to get to my interview with Issa in just a second. I do have a question for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you rather, like, okay, (laughs) what would be harder for you? Yeah. Arctic month of darkness Mm -hmm. or month of darkness in Los Angeles? Like month of darkness in Los Angeles because like FYC season is over and there aren't any cool panels to hit. So culturally dark, is no. that what you mean? The sun does not come up in LA for a month. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would be easier for you to accept that if you were like in the wilderness than if you were like, I'm in East no. Los Angeles? First of all, I am very bad at accepting anything outside of my control. So I would be very mad yeah, and stamp my foot a lot and just be cool to be around. Um, I can't imagine being stuck with you in Ennis, Alaska, if you were having a bad time. I don't want to be cold. Yeah. I moved to California for a reason. And the reason was, I mean, broadly, did I want there to be daylight? Yes. <laughs> but the warmth was the but most important the, thing. But the number one was no more winter, please. Yes. No more winter. Yeah. So 50 degrees and windy, that's okay. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that either. Yeah, you're spoiled. So you wouldn't have been but, able to handle it. I would but, like to see how long I could go out there. Well, you you're you like to test yourself. I have done because of travel kind of situations yeah. like like when I go to when I went went to England last time mm-hmm. I went uh 10 p.m. flight out of LA mm-hmm. so you arrive in England at 4:30 which is essentially darkness there yes and that was weird cuz it was essentially like, so you like missed a day uh, yeah but like the sun did not come up for like 24 hours for me mm-hmm. um and that was pretty disorienting but I was pretty into it so you're basically saying that you are a scientist on the edge of but night but I also know that like my guy, Andrew Huberman, is like, you got to go outside and stare at the sky in the morning and get the circadian rhythms re- re-jumped. So I think I'd be on a variety of pills just to kind of like keep everything regulated. Yeah, I-, I think the excitement of international travel would allow me to be like, guess it's time to have a nice pint at the pub and enjoy sunlight tomorrow. <laughs> I would choose that uh-huh. over a season-long bid at a research station with six weirdo dudes. I feel like your version of this 
is not quite as challenging as you're suggesting. So yeah, like you're, I'm, I'm just actually like throwing it out there. Yeah. Like, what if you had to work a couple of shifts at that cafe? But yeah, if we were at the Salal station and it was you and me and five homies, and one was like, "She's awake." I think you would be pretty disappointed in, in how life worked out. I'm also just, I'm not a big, I'm not into extremity. Like, I don't want nonstop daylight either. Like, I just want. Is that am I am I the asshole? Like I just want like day and night. Like I just feel like it's pretty straightforward. That said, I would much much rather be in its real hot station than its real cold station. Oh, I would much rather be in real cold. This is this is one of the key distinctions. Much rather us. be in real cold station. I, never I mean, it would be, be in, it would be intimidating. I would just be always be like, did you remember your gloves? Because you let your hands will fall off if you didn't. Would you be that guy? No, I, I always lose my gloves, so I would be in a lot of trouble. But yeah. I would I I would hate to be in 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 constant heat. I'd love it. That's why you haven't been to Thailand. That's true. You know, we this is sorry, this is a callback to last Thursday's show. To, to our White Lotus season three discussion. Anyway, let's get into my conversation with Issa Lopez, the writer and director of this episode and the creator of this season, True Detective Night Country. I had a great time talking with her. She was just a wonderful conversation uh, to have. And hopefully she will come back for the finale mm. and talk to us some more. Thank you to Kaya McMullen. And uh, we'll be back on Thursday with some cool stuff with Monsieur Spade, which aired tonight on AMC. Please check that out because we'll be talking about it later in the week. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. 
Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Issa Lopez, thank you so much for joining me on The Watch. Uh, I'm a huge fan of of your work anyway with uh, Tigers. It's so exciting to see you working in this long-form format and with a, a show that I have a tremendous amount of affection for, True Detective. So I was wondering if we could start with you telling me a little bit about basically the genesis of this project because I was curious whether there was, like, is there, was there a night country without a True Detective at first? Like, how did this, how did this project get developed? There was a night country before, but it was a very horrorous creature, you know? It was a very floaty and amorphous thing. You know, I love um, the sexiest period of writing, I think, is when things are not completely anything. And, uh, And if you don't push the creature, if you let it shape itself and tell you what it is going to be, it's, I think the best is, you know, you, you, you plant a seed and you step back and you go for a whiskey and go for a walk and, uh, or in my case, mezcal rather than whiskey. And then you come back and you see what is shaping up. And then at, at a certain point you go, oh, it's going to be a pumpkin. Right? Yeah. And then you, you start planning for pumpkins. And, uh, instead of sitting down and going like, I want to make a tomato yeah you know let it let it come to you so this was still in the what is this beast but i knew that it was going to be a murder mystery i knew it was going to be in the arctic and i knew the very beginning and the ending and at that point i got a call from hbo saying what would you do with true detective and i was like well do you like pumpkins (laughs) (laughs) well you should ask here we are pumpkins are on sale (laughs) this week yeah (laughs) Um, without giving too much away, I was curious whether or not, you know, from that pumpkin phase to when HBO calls, what carried over? It was Danvers in your head. Like you said the Arctic, but. It was Arctic. Obviously it was a night in the Arctic. It was uh, the abandoned mothership, you know, the, the, the Salal station, which the, the, the comparison with a ship was always in my mind and and my production designer landed it beautifully with this this little nostromo looking yeah. um thing so it is an abandoned it is a ghost ship you know where all the crew vanished into thin air and that concept was there and um and the moment that i knew that there was a vanishing of with several men in the arctic i the the next thing that came to me is the Dietlov pass incident mm-hmm which has not been solved to my satisfaction, which is the only satisfaction that matters, <laughs> let's be honest. And uh, there's so many questions still, you know, with, with that. This is the case of uh, some rather experienced mountaineers and that in the 50s in, in Russia had a very mysterious demise in yeah. the ice. So, um, so I took elements of that and I knew that there was going to be Funnily enough, two detectives, you know, um, and I think that comes from my passion for Seven, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, yeah, even, even the massive, I think one of the best detective scenes ever written and executed in, in media is um, that 
fuck, 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 fuck. I hope that word is fine because otherwise yes. it's <laughs> not going to make any sense. Yeah. In the wire, yes, yeah. you know, when when those two cops, Bonk and McNulty, are, yeah, to a place, yeah. and they don't need to th- say anything else for us to understand how their minds are working, and so that back and forth between two brilliant minds has always been a source of fascination, which fits so well with the spirit of True Detective. So you're you're obviously well versed in detective fiction and detective films and detective shows. What are the hallmarks of some detectives that you you were like, I can't wait to have a detective who has the... Because Danvers, as the show goes on, has like almost like a kind of Sherlock Holmes-like brain in the way that she's able to ask questions. But what were some of the tropes you wanted to avoid? Because I think, you know, when you're dealing with an iconic, like a cop trying to solve a murder that just doesn't seem to be solvable you can easily slide into like, well, this person's a savant and they can see things that, you know, nobody else can yeah, see. Yeah, no, no. But savant is a word that is great that you're using because that was the one thing. You know, it's, I think that we've done a lot with uh, um, OCD on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it started as a conversation that was very necessary about these conditions, but I feel that it's been overdone at this point, especially with detectives. And I can see why it can be attractive, you know, the one-track mind that is picking up on the details that the rest of us don't see. But I think that that has been historically done by the since the birth of um, fictional detectives. And when I was very young, I was obviously a massive, massive, massive fan of Sherlock Holmes. I was not a fan of Agatha Christie. Sorry to all the fans. <laughs> I've always felt that the Agatha Christie formula, that's just me. I mean, the, the, the Agatha Christie formula of um, of let's get everyone together in a room yes. and tell them how it went is not for me. And um and Sherlock and the deductive powers has always been an attraction. And it will never not work. You know, that's that's the miracle of contemplating genius. And it comes from, as we all know, a medical teacher from uh, for Conan Doyle. Yeah. And it's about looking at the right symptoms. And in the case of Danvers, asking the right questions. So that was definitely uh, an influence. But uh, but. Because I veer towards that type of detective. If you're going to have two, the other one has to come from a completely different place. Mm-hmm. And um, and the truth is, there's many ways to un- untangle a mystery. Another one of them is to understand people and be able to understand the human spirit. And that's not something that the extremely rational mind necessarily has. So that combination is what, for me, was really tempting and fun. Do you feel like Danvers changed drastically or or at all once you knew Jodie Foster would be saying the words? So once you have... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that because she's extraordinary in this. She's extraordinary. I mean, I, I mean, the woman is extraordinary, right? And we all know that. We all have always known this. And um, however, I was not ready for yeah. what she brought. I was not ready. I was constantly in awe to to what she brought to the set and uh and as you continue watching the series you will see it's just insane the places she will go and i think that we hadn't seen her going to certain places in a really long time and certainly not in this in a single story you know that's partially because i think she hadn't done tv i mean she did tv when she was a little kid 
but it was a different TV. We had them. This this new incarnation of prestige TV, and when TV has finally uh, gotten to the place where it it has claimed its rightful uh, place amongst the arts, the arts because it is an art form. Uh, Jody has hadn't done this. So with ninety minutes, hopefully, because now movies are three hours, yeah, right? But right. <laughs> it should be ninety minutes. And so in ninety minutes, you don't have. It's very complicated to have the full range of a character while six episodes give you that canvas. And she took the opportunity. That said, I did write with Jody in mind mm. uh, because um, because of Clarice, honestly, and because she's incredible and she's a legend and who wouldn't want to work with her? But I didn't think she was going to take the part. She's very picky and has not been working in acting all that much lately. Yeah. I was just looking at her filmography and I was like, I can't, I, I feel like she's ever present because you see her, you see her older films and then it's just like, this is a major event. This Jodie Foster is doing a, she's yeah. intrusive. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it really feels like the, like the audiences are reacting uh, like that to the idea of, of sitting for an entire series with her. There is a hunger for her. However, uh, she, I, we sent episodes one and two, the scripts, and she really liked them and very quickly read and wanted to have lunch with me. And I was convinced that she was going to say no. So I did it because I, who would say no to Dear Diary? I had lunch with Jodie <laughs> yeah. Foster, right? So I went and she had watched Tigers Are Not Afraid, read the scripts. She was, she's, she has such an incredible, incredibly sharp mind and uh, endless film references and is an is a passionate uh viewer of international cinema so she loved the movie we talked about the she's a director too uh, um the job of directing children in my previous work and then we talked about the scripts which she loved but she didn't feel that Danvers was a character that she could bring much to because a character I had written originally was a woman on the verge of a breakdown constantly, like barely holding it together. And I wrote it for Jolly because I had never seen her like that. Yeah. And she said, well, I, I love the idea of a woman that is on the verge of a breakdown, but what if she's holding tight and bitterly and angry? And, uh, and we started to to play in, in that very first launch with that idea. And um, what if she says things that uh, just come out of her mouth and are, are the absolute wrong thing? And what if some of the ideas in her head are honestly even racist and she doesn't think or realize they're racist? So we, we started to play with this character. And at the end of that meeting, I said, okay, so if I'm getting this right, what you want from the Ambers is for her to be an asshole. And uh, and she laughed and said, yeah, I would love that. So then she jumped on a plane and went to make Nyad. And I sat down with Danvers and I loved the idea of writing a terrible, terrible human being. Because, and this is about, you know, prestige TV, that uh, we had had some incredible, incredible male anti-heroes mm-hmm. in TV, starting with Tony Soprano and going to Mr. White and uh, and Don Draper along the way. But uh, but whereas the big, huge female character that is a terrible human being. 
And, uh, and this was an opportunity to have that and to have Jodie Foster doing it. So she read this new incarnation, loved it, and came on board. One of my favorite parts about the first episode, aside from obviously the tremendous, you know, last 10 minutes that are just like ramps up the intensity over and over again, is the way that you ask the viewers to go take a little bit of a leap of faith where you're asked to understand and map all the relationships between the people in Ennis. So you notice that Danvers seems to have like a terse relationship with the John Hawks character, but a maternal, maybe a teacher-student relationship with the younger boy. And then she's got this past with Navarro, but it's not exactly clear. For you, when you're bringing an audience into a mystery, how hard is it to also, you know, introduce us to this world, to these all these relationships, to all these histories that these people have with each other? Give us just enough information so that we kind of understand what's going on or we feel like we're on the right path, but not confuse us as, as, as audience members. Well, you know, instead of making it into something painful, the fact that you cannot and should not overload the episode with information, you need to. Episode one forever in every series is going to be a challenge because you have to lay the basis of who who the characters are and what are their lives before they change into what is going to make the series the series, right? So it's always it's always a lot that needs to happen in that first episode. But the beauty about writing a murder mystery is, and I embraced it completely, is that things are not clear from the beginning, you know? You know, you know a little bit about the characters, but there's a lot that you understand that there's history, but you will not know everything that happened. You will know, oh, this is a thing that happened between these two, but what is it? We don't know. We will learn in time. As happens in life, you mm-hmm. know, you you walk into a room and, and you realize that there's a lot you don't know about the people that are being introduced to you, but you can see how the past affects their actions in the present. So a lot of what makes these characters tick is going to be revealed throughout the series. And I think it's part of the spirit of come walk with me to discover what lights under the eyes, you know, who, what happened to these men? What happened between these two women? What happened in the past of this character that is so scarred now? And we will discover it episode to episode. I was so like, I think energized by the fact that there's not really a fish out of water POV character that everybody is coming up to to say, you just got here to Ennis, but boy, you should know that Navarro has, this is her history. It's like you get these things yeah. like sort of piece by piece in the course of their everyday life. Another really cool thing that I, I feel like I noticed in the first episode is the way in which you approached the different settings within the town of Ennis and gave them kind of like their own visual language. You were talking a little bit about some of the alien overtones of, of the, the base and this, there's those great pans that you do. There's these great shots of um, Callie Reese and, and uh, Fiona at that sort of right as you're discovering the, the mass of bodies where I think you do two pullbacks to kind of be like, oh shit, like this is something's about to happen. We just maybe ghosts are real in this world. How did you approach the different sort of micro settings of Ennis visually as a filmmaker? Well, it's I I do hate personally, and I've and I've been briefly a, a victim of this of deciding 
an, an overall language, yeah. visual language for movies or for series. Because I feel that when you do that, you end up chaining yourself and not doing what the scene asks for the scene to happen, for to have its full effect. Because you're chaining to self, yourself to a language that has been imposed throughout the the story. So I don't do that. And 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 it was a decision that I that I reached very quickly with my DP, Florian Hofmeister. And we said each scene is its own movie. And each scene will tell us how it needs to be told. So when we're in Salah, for example, um, because it, it has a little bit of the Nostromo and it has a little bit of the uh, Overlook Hotel in Kubrick, mm-hmm. the camera, and there's something sinister. There's, there's, a, there's a power that goes beyond the men that inhabit the station and it's watching them. So the way that the camera moves in that first sequence there is a little bit the eye of the forces of the universe yeah. contemplating of the, of Salal itself looking at them. And it's a little reminiscent of, of those traveling shots in The Shining. And then we go back to that type of shooting when we come back to Salal mm-hmm. and we start telling the story of Annie and when we go out into the ice to discover the bodies. Because every time that does this darkest, darker, larger than life power involves the story, we go back to that narration. And the stories where the characters are, you know, chatting and sparring amongst themselves, I let the camera serve the exchanges with my actors. Because if you're going to get a Jolly Foster and a John Hawks to have an, an exchange in a scene, you follow them. Yeah. You know, you let them do their thing. And you just let the camera capture it, basically. I, without getting too deep into the series itself, which people are going to be watching on a week-by-week basis, I was curious about how you interpolated some of the mythology from True Detective seasons past into this season and whether that was sort of um, something that you you basically, like you had the, the, the evidence of what you saw on screen from previous seasons and you were like, I'm going to pick and choose here. Or was there like like a document that you kind of put together extrapolating things from the screen? Like, what? how did you sort of work off of that? Well, one of the things that I love the most about uh, about that first season of True Detective was the cosmic horror mm-hmm. angle of it. And it had a Carcosa and it had a Yellow King, which are references to to the Cthulhu mythos with, with Lovecraft and the idea of ancient gods and um, that live beyond the human perception and that are waiting since before the stars were born. And, um, and the, the, that sense of, of something sinister playing the, the behind the scenes uh, and watching from the shadows is something that I very much loved. And I, I completely I love the idea of this ultra real uh, Louisiana Bayou uh, you know, lost America combined with with cosmic horror. And uh and I was very excited about seeing it again. So when I got the call from from HBO, it was like, what would you do with protective number one? <laughs> I would bring that back, number yeah. one. So uh so I, I took the opportunity and uh, I, without spoiling what's coming in the series, because same as with True Detective, you can decide to at the end of the series to understand and interpret the events as completely 
rational and, and belonging in the real world, or you can go the route of Carcosa. Yes. So in this season, I never say Carcosa, but the symbol of Carcosa is in, my, is in this series. And, um, and what I believe is that that symbol marks the places where our world and, uh, and that world beyond where Carcosa is and the, the ancient ones walk, that's where the spiral connects them. So yes, there is a, there is some way to read the series where you can decide that uh, there's places, there's theme places where we can look into the world beyond. Yeah, I mean it's it's really cool because as somebody who's a fan of the show to begin with, like you, I've I've made some connections, but at the same time, it's got a mythology all its own already. Uh, it's a really tremendous piece of work, Issa. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you come back at the finale so that we can talk more openly about some of the things that are to come. But you should be so proud of what you've done. It's so awesome. Thank you so so much. Thank you. I will come back. Absolutely. Thank you very much. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.